this manuscript, in a way, even though it was written in the 1490s, um, and therefore in an age when humanism and printing were established, is actually a resolutely and deliberately medieval manuscript. One of the sides should feel smoother than the other. This is the flesh side. This is the hair side, where all the hair of the animal has been scraped away. It sticks to the format of displaying the text in a single column, and then a commentary surrounding it in the margins in a slightly different script. Ovid manuscripts were produced at lots of different levels for lots of different kinds of consumer. There were school books, for example, which would have lots of glosses and commentary, but they certainly wouldn't have pictures. So this is an aristocratic one. This manuscript was commissioned by someone called Raphael de Mercatellis, who was one of the illegitimate children of the Duke of Burgundy, Philip the Good, and who had a very successful but rather greedy ecclesiastical career. As a courtier, Raphael de Mercatellis is somebody who would have used his books partly as a way of displaying his wealth and influence, as well as an undoubted personal love of them as, as objects. This is typical of the kind of book he commissioned, very large scale, lavishly illuminated, and bearing his coat of arms, and this monogram LYS, Lys, which comes at the end of his surname, and R. Raphael M. Mercatellis. You definitely get the sense as you look through um, medieval or Renaissance illuminations that the artists that are taking these myths from the text and they're making them their own and they're making them relevant to a contemporary audience. This is an image of episodes from the life of Cadmus. At this point, um, Cadmus has been sailing round the ancient world looking for his sister with no luck. Um, and he doesn't really know what to do, so he goes to the Oracle of Apollo at Delphi. This is Cadmus, and it's interesting that he's represented in the attitude of a Christian worshipper, so on his knees with his hands clasped in front of him. Something else I noticed was how the figure of Cadmus slaying the dragon is very evocative um, of representations of St George killing the dragon. Now, when we look at these narrative scenes, what's very interesting is that they're, they're not really portrayed in um, classical drapery or classical landscapes. There's very much this sense that it's medieval costumes and architecture that are being depicted. And I find, that as a classical art historian, I find this absolutely fascinating that there wasn't really this visual demarcation between the past and the present. I don't know whether the medieval artist would necessarily have thought through all the consequences of this anachronistic portrayal, but one effect that it has is showing very much the continuity between the world of um, classical mythology and the contemporary world in which this represent representation was made. The Middle Ages didn't, on the whole, like to exaggerate a sense of rupture with the classical past. I think they often felt that medieval culture really grew out of classical culture, um, rhetoric, learning, philosophy. But of course, there's one great sticking point with that, which is religion. We're looking here at the beginning of book 12 of Ovid's Metamorphoses, the Trojan War. And what's depicted is really the origins of the war. 
Hecuba, Queen of Troy, has a dream of a burning brand, which is interpreted as meaning that the son she's pregnant with is going to be the cause of the destruction of Troy. The child is therefore exposed um, and is meant to die, but in fact it survives, grows up, and as a young man uh, is told that he will win the love of the most beautiful woman of the world, Helen. We see Helen in the Temple of Venus. She is kind of carried off by Paris, uh, taken by boat to Troy, and the vengeful Greek fleet is going after her. So we're looking here at Calchas, the high priest, who, um, according to medieval convention, is actually dressed up as though he were a Christian bishop. Um, it's interesting that the commissioner of the manuscript, Raphael de Mercatellis, who, of course, was an abbot, had also, by this point, been appointed to a bishopric. So he's almost seeing himself in this pagan world. When you look at the architecture, the buildings, in particular this big kind of chapel-like building in the bottom left, really does look like a late medieval church but it has a pagan idol in it. So there's a very interesting collision here, I think, between pagan religion and Christian religion. I think that's quite important to the meaning of this picture. One of the things that the Christian Middle Ages were very clear on is that back then there were pagans and now we are not. And pagan religion was felt to be misguided at best, demonically inspired at worst. You know, these statues, according to St. Augustine, had little demons living in them, giving out, you know, leading people to their doom. One of the strategies for, for dealing with um, Ovidian mythology is to find moralizations within them. And in both French and Latin versions, you find retellings or presentations of the Ovidian stories accompanied by sometimes quite unexpected morals. Pierre Bossuet's Ovidius Moralisatus was written in the middle of the 14th century and was the standard Christianizing work on Ovid's metamorphoses. So, for example, it starts here and quotes from the Ovid text in larger script and underlined in red and then explains the text and gives moral or Christianizing readings of it. This is the first of a pair of images in which we're going to see Ovid, not the mythographer of the metamorphoses, but the teacher of the art of love, and also what to do when you don't want to be in love anymore. In the first one, Ovid is teaching at a kind of a lectern with his book in front of him in a garden of love, like something out of a medieval love allegory, like the Romance of the Rose. And he's got around him an audience of these courtly figures, young couples on the left, to the right, probably a couple of children, I think, rather than grown-ups far away. And interestingly, bottom right, um, an old couple, an old man who's clearly he's still avidly listening. There's probably a kind of a story here that there's an expectation that the old will grow out of love, but in fact, love still retains its power into old age. I'm going to turn now to the remedies for love, in which uh, apparently older, bearded Ovid is again teaching. But this time, what he's doing is repackaging the heroes of classical mythology, some of them we meet in the Metamorphoses, as exemplar, uh, that is, um, stories you can learn from, about what goes wrong if you don't learn the art of falling out of love. For medieval readers, sometimes uncomfortable with teaching the art of sexual love, 
One of the ways you could justify that was to say, well, look at the way that Ovid himself almost retracted it in a later work. And for a lot of medieval biographers of Ovid, they claimed that he actually wrote the remedies after he'd been exiled by Augustus as a way of making up for having really annoyed the Emperor Augustus with uh, his earlier poem, The Art of Love. <laughs> 